Welcome to the Real Life Investing Podcast with Jason and Rachel Wagner. We are husband and wife and dedicated to bring you conversations that revolve around real estate, entrepreneurship, personal development, relationships, politics, and just regular conversations that come across the dinner table. We will share with you actual stories of relatable people with hopes to inspire you to invest in becoming the best version of yourself. Thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Real Life Investing with Jason and Rachel Wagner. We've got a cool one tonight. We've got Jordan Warner joining us from Greystone Realty, another Greystone broker. And Jordan, a guy that just bought a house. Congratulations. I did. Thank you. Not <laughs> <laughs> just a house. Yeah, I mean, he bought, he bought a fixer-upper. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So he bought a ranch. And I mean, you could tell, you could tell us about the house. Sure. So it's a little single family ranch. I got uh, over West Humble Park, founded on an estate sale, which is really what I've been kind of looking at a lot of. They have a little bit more opportunity, I feel there. And there's not as much attachment from the seller side, which makes for a better deal. So the single family ranch uh, built in the 1960s and good bones, but needing a lot of updating, a lot of smoke uh, happenings in there from, you know, back when Marlboro Reds, I think, were <laughs> very popular. We used to call those the cowboy killers. Cowboy killers. I, I, unfortunately, I think it did harm to... Uh, the cowboy that was living there. Uh, <laughs> so you got yellow walls, is what you're saying. Oh, they making were, it, making it the estate sale, huh? Making it the estate sale. <laughs> for for someone that doesn't know what an estate sale is, what what is it? So sale? estate sale um, can happen multiple ways, but basically, it's someone has passed away and the property is left to either probate or sometimes it can just go directly to the heirs and they can sell it. From my understanding. Yeah. Yeah, and in probate, they're basically trying to find the heirs of where the property needs to go to, right? I think that's how that works. Through the state. Yeah, the state can, or the state might be owed money, Mm -hmm. uh, taxes or something. And so they'll determine what needs to be done with the property, Mm -hmm. whether it needs to be sold off or whether or not it can just pass down to the heirs. Right. um, So I'd like to learn a little bit more about estate sales um, myself, but. Yeah. So you, so this one was on the market. This one was on the market. Uh, when I found it, it was actually already contingent. So it was just within three or four blocks of where I was living and kind of popped up on my radar. I was actually looking at it for a comp for another house that I was going to put an offering on. And I wanted to walk through it, uh, gave the agent a call and he said, the deal's falling apart. Do you want to put an offer on it? And I said, well, let me walk through it first. You know, like I haven't seen it yet. Oh, so he's eager. <laughs> oh, very, very eager. Uh, he was going to be putting it back on that day. Yeah. So he was like, I'd like to leave it in contingent status if instead of putting it back on through MLS and going through all of that, he didn't want to spark up showings necessarily again. So did you find out why that deal fell through? From my understanding, finance, mm-hmm. um, you know, I never really trust, yeah. you know, there's a million things that they can say. I've yeah. seen literally on a listing earlier today, I saw that the son wanted to move back in with the parents. And so that's why the deal, the house went back on the market, another property, you know, so it's who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there were some things about this property that 
might scare like an FHA buyer um, or even just someone that is not looking to do little handyman type projects mm-hmm. um, without diving too deep into it. It's just like things like uh, it's a, it's a non-metered water uh, house, which yeah. can be good or bad. You know, it does. What does non-metered mean? So this one in particular does not have a meter on the inside of the house. Supposedly there's a shutoff in the front. I have yet to find that. Mm-hmm. So all there is basically is a knob in my house and it does not, it's not counted by the city. So I'm only build an estimated amount. They take the square footage of the house. The lot size is actually what they use, which is kind of dumb. And they figure out your rate based on that. And you get a consistent bill every single month. Yeah. Yeah. I actually worked with a client one time and I always thought that having a meter on your property would be good. And, uh, you know, you only get charged for what you use. Mm-hmm. And until it was actually one of my contractors, one, he comes in and he's like, Oh man, I hate properties with meters on it. I'm like, why? And then he said, well, when they leak, all of a sudden you get charged a ton of money and you don't, know that you have a leak because in Chicago, the bill comes out every two months. Mm-hmm. So if you have a leak and you just got notified of it, maybe on your bill because it's spiked, well, then you're trying to investigate where's the leak. Yep. <laughs> it happened to us at Sunnyside. It happened to us at Sunnyside. Yeah. And so it took me over four or five months to figure out the problem mm-hmm. and I couldn't find the leak. I ended up changing all the floats and all the toilets in every unit because none of the tenants said that we had a leak or a running toilet and I couldn't find it either. And so anyways, I'm like, well, I'm getting charged a ton of money. It ended up being over the four months, a whole year's worth of water Mm -hmm. being charged there. The city does not care. The city doesn't care. (laughs) Yeah. And because the bill doesn't come out every month, you really don't have any idea if you fixed it or corrected it. And so I remember calling and it took forever to get through to somebody. And then I finally did. And they're like, yep, you still have it listed as a a leak. You'll have to wait for the next bill to come out to see if you get it fixed. (laughs) And I was just like, wow. So when you look at how much money we spent on water that year, it was literally a whole year's worth within that, that leaking timeframe. I've heard that horror story. Yeah. And you know they were so you have you have a gem I, my friend yeah. it's a gem it's good for budgeting <laughs> it's great for budgeting so my first bill came okay. already yeah um it's 120 dollars for the month which for two months because it's a two-month period um Unless, or was it 240 dollars that you're talking about that's a great question. Let me look at it again. Yeah. So but just, I'm pretty sure. Well, you just because started. it just started my service. Yeah. So gotcha. it's I've been pretty sure it's just a one month period gotcha. mm-hmm. because they switched over my service actually before I even owned the property, which is a whole nother story. Mm. But it's not really that big of a deal. I'm just going to pay it. And move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but 110 dollars. I feel like as a single person, I probably would be using less water than what the estimates are. So like, it probably hurts me yet. If a family lived there, it's great. Yeah. You know, actually, in all honesty, I'm going to start watering my grass <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Use as much as you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have, so this property on the outside, one of the things I really liked about it is the outdoor space mm-hmm. in the front. It has like beautiful, well, they need, they need some love, but 
long stem roses in like the entire front, um, which I really like stuff like that. I like being outside, I like gardening to a degree. I just like being outside. Um, the backyard has a deck and then a cement patio on the back side of it. There's no grass um, outside of like a few patches in the front, but really it's like the outdoor spaces to me kind of sold me on the property itself. Um, there's a couple of entrances to the outdoor spaces. So this house actually has four separate entrances to it. Huh. Both of the bedrooms in the back have their own doors that lead out to the deck, which I think is kind of unique and cool. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's convenient one. Um, and it's just, it's nice. So you have screen doors on the back as well. So if I want open air, whatever I wanted to do back there. Um, and then it has a side entrance um, that opens up into like a landing going down into the basement. And so my intention there is eventually to do like an in-law suite um, downstairs and house okay. hack basically the basement out, uh, which is in the near future plan. Um, I want to start capitalizing on that really honestly, before I start doing the work upstairs, um, like as far as kitchen and, and bathroom, I'm going to work on getting bathroom, which there's is already one downstairs. I'm just going to redo it. Um, and then put a little kitchenette in and finish the basement out. Nice. Wow. That That's out. a great plan. Actually, I didn't realize that you were going to be doing the in-law suite down in there. Yeah. So this is, it's zoned as a single family home, right? You zoned. bought it as a, it's this, oh. Typical ranch, uh, raised ranch home, right? And then you bought single family home. Is there was there already a like a kitchen that was down there or plumbing lines that were down there? So this house has a lot of really unique things. Mm-hmm. Um, it has so it has a sub pump basin, um, which handles the plumbing mm-hmm. from the the basement stuff. Does not handle the rest of the house. The rest of the house has two main lines that go out probably about four foot above basement level hmm. um, or basement ground level. And so there's one on one side and one on the other. And so it makes it really convenient to be able to, I don't have to run plumbing underneath the floors yep. or anything there. Yeah. So you have, over, um, you have overhead plumbing, right? I have there, overhead plumbing, which is very unique. So very unique. Yeah. And, and they're on opposite side of the house. So I don't have to trench stuff under to get to the other side or go up and over. Mm-hmm. I can just, literally just go out one side of the house or go out the other. And so it's right next to where I'm going to put the kitchenette. Um, That's awesome. Fantastic spot. Yeah. So, and this is a, what year was it built? Uh, 19... About 1960. Okay. It was a 1950, 1960 year. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, and what's interesting, so for those that don't really understand like <laughs> how plumbing lines work in Chicago, um, a lot of them, they just go under the slab under of your basement, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got, maybe you'll see like the main stack that we call. That's where all the waste from the toilets and the showers and the drains, they all go in down this main stack. And that's usually the thickest pipe that you'll see. Um, usually it's like a cast iron. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's PVC if it's been updated, newer yep. construction, but... But yeah, and then it goes under the, under the slab and out to the street and into the sewer. Which is and normally where you have a lot of the problems. Typically when you do have problems, yeah. And it's hard to rod those out. Um, and if you're on the northwest side, you might have backups because that's what happened. Though We've had two really heavy rains and everything got flooded. And actually on the west side, it got flooded too. Mm-hmm. Really bad. Yeah, um, on the west side. So I bet you, you had like seepage that kind of happened, but I bet you didn't have like big backup. I had no backup. 
Right. Because in fact, you have my overhead. sub pump was my pit was almost empty. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. and it's because you have an overhead sewer system. Right. Which is so his main sewer line is above his head or eye level mm-hmm. and it goes out to the street that way. And so how houses that have a sewer system that's below the stack or below the excuse me, below the foundation under the slab, those are the ones where they'll back up first. Mm-hmm. So it's nice, nice, man. You picked out it's a job. A, it's a it's an interesting one. And so to kind of touch on those the seepage problems that I did have, really there's just bad sloping, bad concrete work in the gangway. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, there's just been water from both from the neighbor's building and then mine that have caused the sidewalks in the gangway to kind of collapse. Um, and it's only in maybe a seven to 10 foot section there. Really the rest of it's good. Um, side note, I'm thinking about trying the uh, foam underneath yeah, to try yeah, to push like up. Mud, call it mud jacking. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to doing concrete work because it's just so expensive right now to do mm-hmm. concrete stuff. Um, yeah. I would so. also do that too. If the slab is still in good condition and it's just kind mm-hmm. of like sloped in the just wrong some- way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just do the mud jacking. Yeah. So that's something I'm going to look into a little bit. Um, but really that's what's created the seepage issue in the basement. There were two foundation cracks mm-hmm. um, that were behind the, so when I bought it, it had wood paneling, 1960s, nice wood paneling all the way around. Um, we pulled a few of those off when water was coming in during, uh, I think it was during the July 4th. Uh, storm mm-hmm. pulled those off and kind of saw what was already behind there. And they actually sent in someone to inject the cracks for me. Nice. Um, so there were two, two cracks visible. Now that I've lived there, I've actually pulled everything off and inspected the whole foundation. There is still one crack on the other side of the house. Not as worried about it because the sloping is okay over there. Like not worried about seepage. I'm worried about fixing it but the um so, side of the house with them I, uh, they are repaired i want to ask you um so usually cracks in the foundation are like a whoa big flag mm-hmm. right oh my gosh like there's something wrong the house is collapsing mm-hmm. the foundation's cracking like is that like the way you should think about foundation cracking <laughs> like in your eyes like when you saw those cracks were you like <gasps> um no I, I personally wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of cracking is caused by water and issues. And I could see exactly what the problem was. If I, if the sidewalk up there wasn't in the condition that it was and sloped towards the house, then I would have been like, okay, what's happening? The house is settling. There's another issue going on, but this is literally like years of water getting trapped under there and looking for a way out. Mm-hmm. And it's, literally like a basin drawing all the water to that section. So I'm sure it's went down there, freeze thaw that we have here, um, you know, which a lot of places don't have to deal with to the same degree we do, but um, that freeze thaw cycle will cause those cracks Mm -hmm. really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. Isn't there like a rule about foundation cracks being vertical or horizontal? Aren't vertical cracks typically okay, but horizontal ones more concerned about? Yeah. So like, you'll see a lot of like the vertical cracks. You see that kind of in most homes, honestly, right. in most homes, even ones that are like recently built, they might have like a, a, a crack that kind of comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And those can easily be injected with like a polyurethane. And that's what you were talking about. The, somebody had injected it um, when you pulled back the paneling. And so you kind of see it be, and you know that it's been injected correctly because they still have like the, the drill holes and the pins that are still sticking out. And like you can't take those out. Um, and so that'll usually be kind of like coming from the wall. Um, but those like those seal cracks oh, yeah. and they do a really good job. And like a lot of the companies that install them, um, they give like lifetime warranties. So if you're given a lifetime warranty on something, like it works. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And I think too, um, just from like them actually cleaning up the cracks and filling them. What also made me feel really comfortable is the cracks are very, very like thin and close together. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you know, it's more water versus settling, whereas like it hasn't pulled apart, mm-hmm. you know, or, or something there's where you have a, in my opinion, I'm not a foundation expert, but from mm-hmm. my, my thought processes, when you start getting gaps mm-hmm. and you start getting like actual movement, like this is literally just like pressure, like a break, mm-hmm. you know, and that's all it is. Yeah. Um, and so when they filled it, really, you couldn't even see that there's a crack there outside of you know, literally a hairline, but it's enough to let water and moisture seep through. Mm-hmm. Um, now I run a, a, hum- a dehumidifier down there and the basement sits around like 45% humidity, which is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, flicks on, flicks off, um, which is good to see. It's not constantly running. Yeah. So it's, you know, I feel pretty good. I'm going to reseal the basement probably. Um, they had done like plastic, like old school, you know, like plastic is what they had lined the basement with mm. i took all that down when i took all the wood paneling down but i'll mm-hmm. probably just like reseal it and then drywall yeah 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 so um because i've seen like people put like almost like a house wrap type mm-hmm. yeah um, stuff. yeah i like a tie back and like you can put that around the walls um when you go to put up the studs and kind of seal that and it's more it's like a vapor barrier type mm-hmm. thing yeah. yeah um but yeah, no, back to your, your point on like the horizontal stuff. So yeah, like if you do have like a massive horizontal crack, those are, those are ones to be more concerned about and to get like a, another opinion on. And like in that case, and I've had to do this on a few deals before, you have to get a structural engineer to kind of come out and give their evaluation of the movement of that crack and how, and to your point, like the gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times if that crack has been there for a long time and like there's there's no movement and sometimes how they measure the movement is like they'll put markings on the wall and then like with pieces of tape they'll put a piece of tape over there and then they'll put a marking there and then over time they'll say we'll monitor to see if this moves at all and so it's kind of an interesting Mm -hmm. way like that will literally determine if you have movement that's going on all those things can actually be fixed which is crazy but it comes at a price right so yeah yeah, I think the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest thing that I'm worried about with this house in particular is water flow and water travel. And you can just see like they, this is like the house of Eve spouts. Um, the Eve spouts like do these weird runs. Like it's like down, you know, out to the front, around the corner, like over to the, like they're trying to like use it to like water the garden you know or something it's like literally probably like a 30 foot run from the gutter to the front lawn type like they're kind of funny um so like that's my biggest thing and like filling cracks Mm -hmm. in the uh patio in the back so Mm -hmm. there's not any water seepage underneath of that 
Yeah. Um, but I think um, that's the biggest. Yeah. So for the downspouts, yeah, that's, that's actually a big, a big thing too, that you can correct any, typically any water that goes into the basement is probably being like dumped on by mm-hmm. the downspouts, mm-hmm. right? Downspouts collect all the water that's on the roof and all goes down this one little pipe. Yep. And depending on where that pipe sits next to your foundation, yes, you know, you typically want that away from the foundation and going downhill. And yes. sometimes you've got the opposite where you've got concrete that's like it dumps onto the concrete, but the concrete sloped towards mm-hmm. you know foundation and then ends up coming back. Yep. So that's one of my projects here over the next uh, when I feel like working outside, I'm gonna put a hose up, see how water flows. Nice. I mean, I kind of have an idea from having a couple of rainstorms and you yeah. kind of see like, okay, this corner has a little bit of like green mossy growth, you know, or whatever, you know, there's some water drippage there that shouldn't be or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's, I'm starting to get to some of those like more fun quote unquote projects, mm-hmm. you know, where you can like clean the gutters. I don't know if people consider that fun, but yeah, <laughs> it's like simpler. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, no, I love this. What do you think is your time frame? for the work that you're doing to kind of get the so getting the basement unit kind of rented out and like or in shape so that you can rent it out that kind of seems like the biggest priority it is yeah um so to take a step back on just the, the greater timeline um initially my timeline was so i i closed on this in the middle of july here um around the 18th and my goal was to move in August 1st so I can stop paying rent. Um, it was an aggressive goal, but I was like, Hey, saving this much money on rent is going to go right into the house. Um, and so I made that happen. I don't know how, um, spent, I was probably doing like 12 to 16 hours of painting and, uh, clean up and just stuff to just get me into the place. Mind you, my my first timeline that I rolled out was like only really about seven to 10 days long in that like I had all of my boxes checked. Now we're three weeks, four weeks later, and I'm still probably like quite a ways away from there, mm-hmm. mainly because of painting, um, the amount of work that went into the prep work for painting mm-hmm. in this house was not what I expected. Um, going back to the the smoking issue and doing my research on how to properly like, you know, get rid of the smell, how to do it most effectively, um, how to paint most effectively. And, you know, I kind of went through all those steps, cleaned, took me probably a week of first I had to vacuum the walls. Like they were just full of dust to the point where I could vacuum the dust off the wall. Um, so I vacuumed the entire house dry dry cleaned it all. Um, that's what they said was the best first option for like smoke and stuff is like, don't get it wet, like get everything off that you can that's sooty or dry or whatever. Went through that process. Um, the walls were then in condition that I was just like, okay, I'm going to leave the walls. Um, we're going to start with primer on them, but like woodwork and stuff. So when I first saw the house, I kind of thought, oh, I can probably keep some of the woodwork as i got more time in the house i was like this woodwork is not something worth keeping like Mm -hmm. spending the it was mismatched 
Yeah. The things that you yeah. don't, it's kind of funny. Okay. So when Are you, you like when you're trim? looking at a house, yeah. yeah okay. When you're, when you're looking at a house and when you walk through it, the, the things that you pick up on versus when you are spending more time there, like you look at woodwork and you're like, Oh, it all looks good. Like it's in good condition, but you don't pick up that it's all different trim. Like it doesn't all match, right? It might be There's good so trim. Much truth there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like little things like that. I mean, yeah. big things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was going kind of through the process of, of just figuring out like what my projects really are going to be. And the trim work um, became instead of just a clean and salvage, it became a clean prime paint um, because it's not like that's the only way it's going to look the same mm-hmm. right now until I remodel and then I'll do all new trim when I refinish the floors. Mm-hmm. Just makes more sense to do it, you know, then. Sure. Um, so that process has taken me, the cleaning process of the trim and everything took probably three days in and of itself of like 12 hours scrubbing, like hand this cramps. Is, this is you doing it, right? This is me doing this. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I have had. One, um, so my old roommate, his uncle does plaster work. Um, and so he helped me do plaster stuff. I am not good at mudding. I'm sure I could figure it out. It's just not something I really want to learn right now. Um, kind of messy sanding, not my thing. Um, so he helped me with that side of things. But other than that, this has been me. Like I thought I would even have a little bit more help than I have had, which is, fine. I mean, it's good learning experiences for me. Um, but yeah, so went through the cleaning process, um, have been painting and now here we are three weeks later. Um, I have a trim color that I'm not super enthused about, but I have a few gallons of it that I need to use up. Um, and so we're working through that. I just literally put my last coat of primer on the last door uh, yesterday. So like the primer is done. It is in the garage. The bucket is in the garage, not going back to primer. (laughs) Um, because like, you know, there's a kind of an order of things too. You have to, and you don't think that, okay, this trim is touching this. And so I need to paint this first because otherwise I'm going to drip on this or, you know, like there's a whole order of things and you can't get to, it's hard to finish out one thing, I guess before you're kind of finishing it all out. Like you have to do the whole house at once, at least from what I'm doing. Um, So that has been kind of a a different learning experience. And that's why it dragged out the timeline a little bit because I was originally just planning on, okay, let me knock out the back two bedrooms, Um, which for those of you that don't know me, I was living in about a, I'd say an eight by 10 maybe bedroom for the past mm-hmm. 18 months or so. Um, my whole life has been in there. I went from uh, living in, uh, you know, a 1800 square foot single family house by myself, um, full of my stuff to going down to a, a bedroom. Yeah. Um, and that was all in the greater effort to get into another property up here in Chicago um, it has given me opportunities to, uh, you know, get my license and like start building a, a real estate career, mm-hmm. um, and not have to worry about 
some of the finances as heavily um, because rent's been cheaper. Mm-hmm. So a lot of benefits that that's brought to me. But um, I kind of said, so in, in moving into these back two bedrooms, I was like, oh, I can definitely do that. I'm going to have two rooms instead of one. So I can like have an o- my office set up and I can have bedroom. And essentially that's what's happened. So I hit my August 1st deadline um, and was literally moving stuff you know, on the first, um, got my bedroom set up. I'm sleeping on the floor on a mattress. Um, but that's a okay with me. Um, it's my own space right now, which is fantastic. And then I have the office set up as well. So I've kind of just started, this is week four. I'm just starting to get back into the swing of like having more time that I can dedicate to other things. Um, because I was in this crunch mode where literally it was like, I wake up and I'd be painting at seven o'clock in the morning and I'd be painting until nine 30. And it was probably the paint fumes that were like keeping me going. You know, it was like not ventilating the house whatsoever. It was, I think like the hottest days of the year, like 95 degrees. So I had everything closed up as tight as possible, air conditioner running, you know, just trying to stay cool. These are these are really good moments. I'm really glad we're recording this so that like you're kind of capturing like the in the moment. This is what it's like. Yeah. Um and it was actually it was actually Alex Ramosi. He came out with a quote the other day that said, "One thing that I wish I would have done was document and take more pictures of the moments that were like really sucky." Mm-hmm. And like so you just describing like 95 degrees not poorly ventilating, you know, mm-hmm. sleeping on the floor type thing. <laughs> oh, I have like, those are Those are great. Those are great yeah. stories. And what, you know, a year from now, when you mm-hmm. finish the project and whatnot, you're going to look back at that. You're going to be like, yeah, remember when I was doing that? <laughs> yeah. And it's true. Like, like you said, like I'm already just talking about these things. Yeah. I'm like, I never would have, if I don't talk about them or document them, like I'm probably not going to remember them as heavily, like, or they're not going to be as, big of a part of the story, you know, as Mm -hmm. they are, it's really important. I think to think, reflect back on just what, what you're coming through, you know, what you're learning from it, the takeaways, Um, because like when your head is down and you're just working on things, you're just kind of moving on to the next, onto the next thing. And it's, it's important to find the takeaways. Um, It's important to um, really find the takeaways and, and learn from them, you know, and be able to share them, I guess, educate others. And so I really respect that because, uh, well, especially just like what you were talking about, where you're coming from this other single family home where you had so much space and then you're like, Hey, I'm the whole goal that I have is to get into real estate and to start building a career. And how am I going to do that? Well, I can't do that with the current setup that I have or like with the current things that I have here. Cause that was back in mm-hmm. Texas, right? Correct. Where yep. We had that home. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving back to Chicago and like, well saying, Hey, I'm just going to buy a single family home, you know, then, but like you couldn't do that. Right. So mm-hmm. you had to make a sacrifice there. And I just love how you're just, you know, I'm going to go into an eight by 10. I'm going to live in 80 square feet. And like, this is going to be my thing until I see the next step mm-hmm. of buying a property and doing a fixer upper or, and getting it to a point where we can house hack it. Like it's a beautiful plan. And it just kind of shows like, here's the sacrifice that needed to be made in order to accomplish the goal. And now you've accomplished the goal mm-hmm. and now there's more things to come, but yes. I just think it's cool. Yeah. But I think it's, it is, it's like you have, a lot of people won't make those sacrifices, yeah. you know, and that's what sets 
just a lot of people apart from others. It's like the, the goal getters understand that it's not just setting the goal. It's like understanding what sacrifices are needed to be made in order to hit those goals. Yeah. Um, and so often people are not just aware of like what they have that they can give up or, um, you know, we're all blessed in so many different ways. Um, I think that there's just, uh, there's so many things that I could give up. There's so many things I should give up probably, you know, to better myself. Um, so. So I think it's really cool. You were saying like, it's important to look back on the reflection and like, see what you've accomplished and stuff. But I also think it's cool to then compare it to what your vision was and your goal was when you first set it and see if that's aligned or if it deviated and why. So I guess I want to take you back to when you set the goal or had the vision for buying an investment or a property and, and why, what, what was your reason for why you wanted to do that or reason for coming back to Chicago? Kind of the whole, the whole picture. Sure. Um, so I guess take me back. I've always been very, um, my goals are very, they're my goals, you know, like they're not, I don't paint a picture of, of something because it's like, Oh, that's, that's what my parents had or, Oh, that's what my friends have. Like I have always been very, here's my goal. And it's something that I am passionate about or like, it's my drive. It's my why, right. You have to find, I'll go back to that. It's like, have to find your why. And I think I struggle in finding my why, but I don't struggle in setting the goals there. And sometimes just for my, like, I am my why, you know, like you have to do things for yourself, I think, um, sometimes. And so one of the reasons I moved down to Texas, uh, was I was chasing a corporate career job. Um, and that was a a self-made goal, you know, to just pick up and move down there. I literally made a decision to move to Texas on December 1st of 2016, I was working and had transferred down there by January 1st of, you know, literally 30 days, like literally friends didn't know probably I was moving into like the 15th and new year's day. I was packing up my car and en route to Texas, like with a carload of stuff. And all my other stuff was in my at my parents' house, and I said, "Next time you come and visit me, bring me my stuff." Um, <laughs> it's an <a big> execution. <laughs> it was, you know, it was honestly. Um, I had a lot of really negative situations in my life at that time, and I think had I not picked up and done that, I probably wouldn't be here today. And so that was a really good move for me in general. Um, it was a neat a move. I really I needed to make. Like I needed to start fresh. I needed different people around me. I needed, like I, I've always had the same goals, um, and the same drive to do stuff, but I was losing myself. Mm-hmm. And so like, it was like, I can't do that. Let me, let me move to Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went down there and stayed in Airbnbs for, and that's when I really kind of got the real estate bug, honestly, because I was staying in Airbnbs and this was, so like I said, this is about 20, early 2017 when kind of Airbnb, 
like using Airbnb room by room, all that stuff was relatively fresh, um, especially from more from the investment side. Like you saw people using it on their vacation homes and stuff like that, but you didn't see people buying a house to use as an Airbnb place. But in the Dallas Fort Worth area, what I was doing is finding places that were uh, month long stays. And I did that for three months. So I stayed in three different houses in three different neighborhoods in the Dallas Fort Worth area to learn about, you know, kind of where I wanted to buy a house. I was looking at the same time I had uh, paired up with a realtor prior to moving down there. And she was fantastic. I used her actually for all of my Texas transactions. But in doing so, so I, I, I guess where I'm going with that is in my Airbnb stays, I met a couple of the owners. Um, one of them, he was like, yeah, I have four other properties. He was a young guy, like younger than me. You know, I think he was 20, 23. I think I was 26 at the time. And he was making, I was calculating, you know, off of the rooms that he had and what I was paying at a 30 day. I'm like, this guy is making a killing off of this. And this place is not, you know, that great. Like it's nice, but it's not that yeah. it's not like when I go get an Airbnb for a vacation home and you're expecting it to be, you know, hotel, right? Like it's a completely different demographic that you're trying to to reach. You know, they were going after the working class that are there. Dallas had a lot of like traveling workers at that time. So anyway, I got kind of went through that, got the real estate bug from that, bought my first house down there. It was a single family. Really for me, it was a place to live. I still wasn't interested in real estate as investment. I was interested in it because I enjoyed housing, um, which is a little bit different. Um, you know, I enjoyed the housing provider aspect of things as opposed to like the actual numbers behind it. In fact, I really didn't start understanding the numbers until I started getting more plugged in with people up here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, but down there, had that property, um, had a pool and in-ground pool and learned very, very quickly that the pool game is not for the faint of heart. Um, <laughs> we, we are learning that now, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, how many times did your pool turn green? Let me ask you that. Oh, um, so, <laughs> well, okay. So the Texas sun is very different. Uh, it's very, very, you know, intense. Um, so literally I could leave, leave, uh, for work in the morning, the pool would be clear and it could be green and murky when you come home. If the chemical balance was not right. Um, I lived next to the side story. I lived next to one of the largest lakes down there in Grand Prairie, like literally within maybe a half a mile. I had snakes in my pool all the time. Oh, dude. All the time. <laughs> um, I mean, it was easy for them to just slide right in yeah. and they couldn't get out. They were not little like Illinois snakes. These were like big snakes and they would get, I'd, I'd get the net out and I'd fling them over into my neighbor's yard because I just didn't want them anywhere else but in my pool. That's probably how they got in your pool. The neighbor was right. flinging them back. Probably flinging them back. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, that was my 
At least you don't have that problem. And <laughs> hopefully you won't. That's above ground pools. That's yeah. the sea. That's why you don't go that's why. underground. The yeah. But the chemicals, that was where I was I was probably spending 150 to 200 dollars. I was probably spending 100 bucks a week on pool chemicals. Wow. If not more. Like I was going through about 10 pounds of shock a month. Or 10, sorry, 10 gallons of shock a month, two five gallon pails. Um, and it was just, it was not sustained. Like from a cost perspective, it got, so I lived in that place for about two years, almost a little under two years. The last year I ended up selling it specifically because of really the pool and just like, I wasn't using it. Um, I was working way too much and I was, you still had to pay to upkeep it. Um, I and couldn't the pool just season down in Texas is pretty long. all year long, all year long. Yeah. I mean, literally I had like four months that I couldn't use it, Yeah. Um, but I still had to put chemicals in it and still had to run the filter, but you couldn't swim in it because it was too cold. So, um, it was a weird kidney bean shape that I couldn't buy a cover for like a really good cover. So, um, anyway, pools, I just learned that like, I'm better off just I'll use someone else's. I'll come over to you guys. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So we we just bought a, a house with an above ground pool, and it's like a it's a big one. And uh, like the first couple days that we owned it, uh, we jumped in and we swam in it, and we brought the whole family. We had a, like a little party in it, and then uh, so we're we're doing some work on the house right now. And uh, I went to go meet a contractor there. It was about a week later, and uh, yeah, it's it was definitely green. <laughs> I was like. Boy, I haven't watched enough YouTube videos on how to like get this thing up to speed and pay someone to do your chemicals. That's, yeah, that's literally exactly that's what we, we just did. did. That's Jason's what we just like, did. Jason's like, this season's like, almost over. Just hire I'm somebody. Like, I, get I him out there. I can't learn this right now. Yeah. Maybe I'll learn it a little bit later. Maybe I'll learn it from the guy who's going to service it for mm-hmm. me. And then, yeah. you know, I'll be able to take it over. But for now, no way. The big thing is a lot of people put in their chemicals ahead of people swimming. But the real big thing is like you got to take care of it afterwards because your bodies just throw off the whole pool. Mm. Like just even one person jumping in the pool, it throws it all off. So that's one of the bigger things that I learned is like it's more the aftercare that will and then you maintain. That's a great tip. Actually, That's actually a great tip. Thank you. I just learned something. Of course. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Okay. So you're in Texas. So Texas pool sold that place uh, really was a – fantastic location. So I did a, I did pretty well there, um, which propelled me into the next place. The reason that I was looking to move, I was getting tired of the commute, um, in addition to the pool, um, thing. So I had switched, uh, jobs. So after I moved down there, go back a little bit, I, um, ended up leaving the company that I transferred down there with. And, found another job in Fort Worth for a smaller family owned packaging company, um, which was kind of where I thought this is my dream. You I know, mean, like this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and it, it really did fit a lot of, you know, my passions and uh, took all of the experience that I had up to that point. And I followed that, had a really great team um, worked on turning this company around and really got to spend, you know, my next three, four years heavily involved with this this packaging company. Um, so in doing so, I wanted to be closer to their 
uh, to that location so that I could, I was getting, you know, 10 o'clock calls, 11 o'clock calls. Can you, and I'd be like, Oh, I'm too far, you know, but if I was closer, like, yeah, I can stop in there. Um, so found a place in the city of Fort Worth, um, literally probably a minute from downtown. I was one exit out of downtown, which was really unique there. Um, just how the city is built. Like the city is very much so like Chicago in that it's building West. Um, and East is like no man's land kind of. Um, and literally it was like right East of the city. Like you could be, I was literally looking at downtown. I could walk there, but it was deserted. It was the types of houses that were there. Like people were still living with dirt floors, um, which was, I was like, what? Like, you mean like dirty floors? Like they're just like cement and like they have dirt over them. Like, no, like no, no slab, like dirt floors. Like these are like very poor area. Um, and yeah, a little shocking. Um, yeah. Like in Dallas. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is in the Fort Worth side, but yeah, still, um, anywhere like this is the United States and people have dirt floors. Um, you know, these, so found a house though, that was a new construction. Um, this is kind of when the investment mindset started kicking in because I saw, you know, the little bit of work that I did, like working in the backyard of the previous place and putting up a new fence and doing landscaping around the pool, um, you know, refinishing the the front of the house, those like little things. And like, the crazy jump in value that I had. And I was like, okay, we need to, can we, can we talk about that? Like what was the jump in value? Because I, I'm always interested in other markets because it's Mm -hmm. just so different where you have like in a Texas market, appreciation rates have done very well there compared to where we are in Chicago in the Midwest. Midwest has always been kind of like, you know, more modest gains type thing, but Mm -hmm. this was before COVID. So this was before any type of big real estate boom. Yes. So this this was was really more like a a normal market to say, right? Yeah. This was coming out of recovery. So this was, you know, like recovery around 2015, 16. Mm -hmm. Um, So things were really just starting to like gain some serious momentum. Um, I got the place for a little under 190. Uh, I want to say it ended up around like 185 with credits. Um, And then I ended up selling for 225 mm-hmm. 18 months later. Yeah. Um, yeah, nice. And I mean I hardly I really like the the work that was put into it was just my own labor really. Like mm-hmm. hardly anything. You know like landscaping stuff is for the most part your money's in labor there. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything on the inside of the house. I painted the cabinets. Yeah. Was that, was that 20%? I mean, it was about a 20%. Yeah. Roughly 20% in 18 months. Yeah. $40,000 increase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah. So I was, I was very like, that was enough to give me the bug, you know, like Mm -hmm. to just, it wasn't a whole lot, but it was enough to like push me into the next place. It allowed me to say, okay, like maybe I should look at properties from an investing perspective in general. Mm Um, start looking at the numbers a little bit more and like how to make a deal work and all that. So um, next learning experience was stepping into this 
next property, which was a new build, new construction house. And new construction next to the dirt floor houses. Literally. <laughs> literally across the street. <laughs> Just clarify. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Literally up like. Coming. For real. Uh, if <laughs> I could show you. you can have. Yeah, if I could show you these streets and like, it's like, it's cool and sad and yeah. weird all at the same time. Yeah. Like, you know, these are this is the South, you know, like this is Fort Worth. These are people that this, these areas probably like were plantations Mm -hmm. and literally there's like still in Fort Worth, the plantation mansions on the Hills. And like, then at the bottoms of the Hills, like our shacks, like little, like one bedroom houses surrounding these mansions and you can literally see it. And it's just, it's just so different from the dynamic that we have up here. And you, you really see like, this wasn't that long ago, you know, that it, that people lived like this or that it, um, you know, was this environment. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, these, these new construction houses, I was the first new construction house in this area. Um, and I wanted that because I was like, I'm, I'm setting the price um, for the house. And my thought was, I'm actually going to get a little bit of discount on this because they want someone to move into this area, um, which all in, I feel was to be true. Um, the, the three houses that they built right next to mine all went for more. Um, and in my opinion, mine was the largest, like mine was meant to be a show house, but I bought it before they could use it as a model house. Um, basically. And it was a single family, uh, three bedroom, 1800 or 1900 square foot house. And how much did you buy that for? I bought that one for, I want to say it was right around 200, which is Your construction for 200 crazy. Like that's insane. Insane. And, <laughs> and it was like fair new construction. I would say it was economic, like because mm-hmm. of the area, right. They didn't want to overbuild. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like in the year and a half that I lived there, I didn't have any problems with the house. Now, as a, like, there's little things that you pick, like the house was very, very airtight. They did a a lot of foam insulation in it, um, which is good and bad. And the thing that I don't like, the house I grew up in was also, um, which is a whole nother story, but was concrete block uh, house or foam insulated concrete. And, that made everything so airtight. Like you would, you would have trouble closing the doors because the air in the house wouldn't have nowhere to go. It's just crazy that something can be that airtight that it does that, but literally closing the door will make the whole house kind of like shake because of the air inside of it. Hmm. And, um, Hmm. yeah. So we had, I had that down there. I started to notice like as you know, two years into the house, I'm like, okay, the house is like, couple more rattles than I would like. And I, you know, I started to pick up on some of the economic building, uh, that was used there, but, um, that was my property down there that I lived in. 
I lived in that one for two years. So I've been on this like two year kind of thing. Now I lived in Texas for five years. So I sold that house at the end of the pandemic because in all honesty, I, I think people, I think my parents probably like scared me into like, Oh, now's not a good time to hold real estate. Like what if you lose your job? Like we all kind of did when we hit pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, what in the world's going to happen? And so I was in uh, primarily the meal kit industry, which is, you know, HelloFresh and and Blue Apron, um, that world. And so we kind of just said, oh man, I don't know like what's going to happen. I wanted to sell so that I had more flexibility to move back home or, or figure something else out, um, sold the house. Um, to be very honest, I don't really know how well I did on that. Um, I think I just kind of broke even mm-hmm. on that. Um, but I had all my living expenses. Oh, that was another thing. I rented out the, the rooms there. So I was paying maybe five or $600 uh, so, uh, to live. So you were like Airbnb in it or you had like I friends? I had friends. Oh, okay. That you rented out too. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, because I kind of had like, it was how it was laid out was nice. I had kind of my, my own area, my wing, and then there were two bedrooms in the front. Hmm. Um, and so like they had their own bathroom. I had my own bathroom, never really saw each other. Uh, one of them was a traveling nurse, um, friend of mine. So it was just like really, really convenient. Um, so sold that and then lived in an apartment down there for a year, um, as I was kind of just figuring out what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and then relocated back up here to Chicago. And that's really when I wanted to like dive into investing and really get my feet wet. I had the bug. I had gotten that when I was in the apartment, like throughout Texas, but I was like, I'm going to make a transition to be in real estate full time when I was in Texas. And I went through the thought process of really evaluating like how, what, what was going on for me in Texas. Um, I was getting burnt out in the corporate world. Um, so I knew I didn't want to stay with that job regardless of whether or not I was to go get another job or do real estate full time. So I knew that there was a, a time of transition coming up basically. And I said, do I want to do it here in Texas or like, do I want to move back home to Chicago where I can leverage my network? Um, mm-hmm. you know, just, or have just people around me that will support me mm-hmm. in this. Um, which I think was the bigger thing is it's not, it isn't so much about leveraging the network is it's about the support system that's there, um, throughout the process. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's led us up to where we are at today. Um, you know, I've, I've met Jason, which is a whole nother story through, uh, YouTube. <clears throat> so <laughs> I, I love this. I love this whole story. I am not a YouTube person. Nor am I. <laughs> <laughs> like all my friends are like, use YouTube as Google. I'm a Googler. Like I will put in the full sentence question in Google. They go to YouTube right away. We find completely different answers. You know, they learn it completely differently. Like they are visual. I'm like, I read, I'm Mm -hmm. a reader. Um, but anyway, so was looking just to be honest, don't know what I was. I wanted to like get a fix and flip. I think is really where it started. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it was kind of like, here's my, my entry point. Um, I'm back in the city. I was searching for walkthroughs. That's exactly what it was. I was searching through walkthroughs or searching for walkthroughs because I couldn't find like, how do I walk through this building and evaluate it? Like I wanted videos of like just someone walking through with a camera and like being like, oh, check this out. Like, here's what I'm looking at and looking for right here. Like to explain to the common person like here, when I'm looking at a water heater, what am I looking at, you know, or furnace or, you know, in the basement, like I was looking for quirky Chicago because Chicago buildings are quirky. Mm -hmm. Like, so I was looking for the nuances, like the things I needed to be aware of, um, and stumbled upon, um, Jason's videos. And I think you did have a video, like you were walking through your finite, maybe it was before and after something like that. Um, and I was like, this is, this is what I wanted, you know? And I was like, okay. So then from there, I like, okay, I want to, want to meet this guy and just pick his brain a little bit. Um, and reached out to you and we set up lunch and ended up having lunch. And then kind of the rest has snowballed since. Um, dude, I, when I got so that video has actually done decently well on YouTube and all my other stuff has done not so good. Um, and when I say like decent, really well, there's like maybe 2000 views or something. And, but nobody has ever reached out about it. And like, that was when I got a message and it was through YouTube and it was saying, Jordan wants to talk to you or something. I was like, what? (laughs) And so it was really cool, man. And so I'm like, hell yeah, I want to meet this guy. Like who the hell reaches out to somebody on YouTube and uh, sets up a meeting in my, in my opinion, that person has a shit ton of courage. And just like knows specifically, you know, the person that he wants to talk to. So I'm like, yeah, I totally want to meet this guy. I want to know, like, <laughs> I want to know more about him. And so anyways, yeah, we met up, we met up and yeah, I came out of that meeting. And I was just like, dude, that was really cool because that was my first experience of somebody kind of reaching out like that. And, and again, me putting myself in your shoes, I would have never done it. I would have never done it because I would have watched the video and I've been like, great i learned enough but i'm gonna go find somebody else and like you know maybe leverage that to do whatever Mm -hmm. but to actually go to somebody um you know through a channel like that in my opinion i think was amazing i think it was really cool well you're honestly the only person i've ever on youtube that i've ever reached out to you know so So really unique then wow really funny you know like and it's not a platform but i was like how am i how am i it's not a platform i use i'm like how am i going to find the information i just felt like youtube was the best um uh, you know messenger conduit for that type of information Mm -hmm. um historically i i do like meeting people though like that is my thing i'm a i love networking Mm. um love all the networking events that we go to Um, yeah i mean you go to them weekly here in chicago i mean they're one of my goals yeah you you've been doing really really well with that and you've been meeting a lot of people through those and you start to see the same faces and like, are they getting a lot more comfortable? I mean, you just came from a networking event before you came here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I, I, I love it because now it's starting to be that some of them, um, you know, they search you out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've picked up on that. I enjoy that being that like resource, 
Um, again, you know, we just talked about an individual that is a really good conduit, you know, between people. And I think that that with time, I'd love to be able to have that skill to the degree that they do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's invaluable, uh, skill to have is like being able to connect other people because especially in today's world, like people are becoming more and more and more disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, the same, the same tool that we were just talking about YouTube that connected us is also like our own worst enemy, right? Because yeah. it's taking us away from connecting with all these other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you think, Oh, I can just watch the video and I'm good, right. but it's, that's just the beginning. You know, there's like so much more behind that. That's important. Um, and, and so much more to learn that you can't convey through a video. Dude, that's awesome. So I, I really love that point. Um, and specifically what you're talking about, you're talking about, so before we started, uh, we started the recording, we were talking about a guy who's always at these networking events and he's a young guy. He's in his young twenties mm-hmm. and he seems to know everybody, which is impressive. And then what he does is that he will go, if he recognizes that somebody might be a good fit for another person, he will stop the conversation that he's having with that person and say, Hey, I want to go introduce you to that guy over there. And he just like brings him over. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing thing because I've never seen that really done. And then to have it done by a young 20 year old, to me, that is an impressive skill. And I think that's what you're talking Mm -hmm. about is like, you're, you're trying to get to the point where, Hey, I can know enough people and then recognize who could have nice synergies by meeting each other. Yep. I think he, I think he does an excellent job to, uh, I was just thinking about this, like in the questions that he asks uh, when he's in those conversations that pull out like what you need. You know, I think it's so often when we're having conversations with people around us, like we aren't telling people what we need. Um, and I hear this a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, just ask because a lot of these people around there, like that's all they want. The the satisfaction that a person gets of like being able to connect someone with another person is huge. Um, and so if you pick up on someone's need, um, you know, and you can just help them move that ball one step further, like you are ahead of everyone else that didn't do anything. Um, all you have to do is sometimes make that connection, uh, to a person. Um, and so I think it's like the most simple thing yet. It's also like the most complex at the same time. Yeah, man. Like, as you like, let's go a little deeper on this because think about like what that could mean when you connect one person to another and then they build a really tight relationship and that like explodes their business Mm -hmm. or, you know, it just takes them to another level that they never thought that they would go. You were the common thread in that though. Totally. Yeah. And I've, and, and I've had that experience specifically where, and I've gotten a little salty about it, but like where I connected a contractor to another guy and he was an investor and also another agent. And he has basically taken the contractor and like made his whole business around him. And when I had initially kind of connected him, I was just like, you know, this is a guy who's just going to like help out you know, with some of the jobs that he has, but now he's like, he's ingrained him into the business. And I got a little salty about it because I was like, well, you know, now I can't use him. But I think that was like really foolish of me to say that because as I think about the contractor and his business and like where he's gone because of that connection, 
it's actually done amazing things for him. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad to have actually made that initial connection. And I wish I would do that more. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love that you're just like saying like, this is a goal of mine because of the fulfillment that I can get from that. And, mm-hmm. um, and then what it does to somebody else. Yeah. Which, you know, to go a little bit deeper there too, that's, that's one of the driving whys for me in real estate in general is although I have an investor mindset, um, I will say that I don't always wear the investor hat. Um, I ultimately like, I want to be a good housing provider for people Mm -hmm. that need a house, you know, like, I'm not looking, I want the satisfaction of being able to provide a service to someone, um, in particular, like an underserved demographic, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's where I get a lot of my personal fulfillment. And that's what, like, honestly, that's why I live in the neighborhoods that I live in, um, you know, and, and you know, have the, the situations probably that I have. Um, but it's, it's, that's like one of the driving forces that will wake me up the next day to keep me doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's so important to get that why, be- again, everyone says it, but to get that why behind what you're doing. And, and it, it takes me, it's taken me a long time to understand how and what that why is. Um, and you, I always kind of want to tie it back to money. I think everyone in some way, shape or form, a lot of their whys tie back to money. Mm-hmm. Um, and mine doesn't, you know, in it's really, it's hard because I, I, I want to make a lot of money. Right. But I don't see that as like my why. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's. Because why do you want to make money? I have no, like the only reason I would want to make more money is so I can be a better housing provider, right. you know, and provide more. But I feel like if you're on the front end doing and providing a good service, then the money will come. Mm-hmm. It's always been something that I've, been told whether or not, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just a gimmick to keep you moving and keep doing good. You know, the money will come. Um, no, but like truly like that's, if it's about the money, like it's, that's not going to get me up at every single day. Um, you know, I've had very plushy jobs, um, where I've done very well and that I'm not there. Right. I took, 50 to 60% pay cut to move back to Chicago in a city that probably has 50% higher living cost than it did for me to live in Texas. And I am a okay with that. I wouldn't take it back, you know, for a second. Um, it made my goals and everything that much more difficult, um, to achieve up here in, in being able to save, spending more money on food, you know, like all these things I had to make more sacrifices, Um, but that's, I think what really then honed in on the why a little bit more for me. Um, and really I've been able to nail that down within the past couple of months, I would say, like, I still would always try to search for the why that was tied to like the financial gain, um, and what I, 
again, kind of going back to that, like what I would do with the money, but it's, it's for me, it wasn't focus on the money first because of then what I can do with it. It's focus on what I can do with the resources that I have. And then hopefully I'm blessed with more. That's essentially. You, you just have a good heart, man. You want to, you want to help a lot of people and you want to help the underserved and mm-hmm. you want to do that by providing what it sounds like is just providing being a housing provider, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, which is another word for kind of you're being a landlord, mm-hmm. but we call it the housing provider because it's, it's got more of the softness to it. And, um, you know, it's being in those underserved communities that are in Chicago and they're mm-hmm. all, and there, there's a ton of them. Right? Absolutely. I take a lot of lessons from Levi on that. You know, he yeah. does a fantastic job and it's fared him very well. Yeah. I feel like he has been blessed by, you know, what he does. Yeah. So I think that's, it's, yeah, that's a, it's a great, it's a great point because another, you know, again, another Greystone broker, Levi Kane, um, he has built a portfolio, you know, in the underserved communities mm-hmm. and, you know, he doesn't discriminate on anybody. Right. And he doesn't do as intensive background checks and things like that. He knows he goes and meets the people and he gets to know them personally they may not be able to communicate that well because English may not be their first language, but he's able to figure out through Google translate and talk to them. These are good people and I'm going to rent you. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing like softness to it. And I think that's what you're, yeah, what you're heading towards too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's a big goal of mine. Um, this year I've also, uh, just this past month joined uh, an organization. You can, um, so they are like primarily in the North Lawndale, um, neighborhood. Mm-hmm. If that's correct. I need to, let me fact check that. <laughs> um, and they focus really on like high risk youth. Um, and so like that I, I see and deal with as one of the largest issues over in particular, the West side and underserved communities in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this past couple of months, I'm joining the board, uh, an auxiliary board for them. Um, and going to get really try to get more plugged in with just an active, um, community based organization. That's like actively working to improve the communities that they're involved in. Um, because I think that going back to the, being a good housing provider thing, it's not just about the housing. There's so much that goes into that and it takes a lot of private public partnership. Um, and so I don't want to just be the landlord or the housing, you know, like I want, I guess I feel like that housing provider going back to the softness thing ties in with like the people that are more involved, like the landlord is, is just collecting your checks. Mm-hmm. You know, they're collecting rent every single month. They show up on the first and the second, you know, third, if you're a little bit late and um, you know, you see them next month. Um, but I feel like, you know, true, like the people that call themselves housing providers are generally more active in the community. You know, they want to see, the, they are investing, um, not necessarily a hundred percent based on the numbers, but based on location, you know, and, um, they pride themselves on being able to put out a, a community based, you know, and a community effective product, um, which is really how I, 
want to steer myself. Community effective product. It's a good, that's it. It's a good way to describe it. Um, and I just want to give them to your thoughts a little bit on, because a big thing in some of these um, kind of transitioning neighborhoods is, you know, I look at Humble Park, for example. Humble Park, as you move west of the park, still a little rougher. But mm-hmm. like even and not that long ago, even at the park and kind of a little bit north of it, like yeah. all of a sudden that area has really changed. And we have over a million dollar homes that are selling there, which is really interesting. And so it kind of like just brings the question to you of like, okay, this is a big gentrification type mm-hmm. product. Right. And so going off of the term that you said, you know, a, a, a product that designed for product for mm-hmm. the neighborhood. Right. Mm-hmm. What's your, th- what's your thought on like gentrification and like what that does to communities? And is it something that, you know, is how do housing providers kind of like assist in that front loaded question? I know. It, it is, um, you know, but it, I probably don't necessarily take the popular view on it in that I think that gentrification, albeit we're just going to use that word. um, I think that word has a lot of negative connotation for a lot of different reasons that are unrelated to investors going in Mm -hmm. and changing the housing. I think a lot of gentrification has to do with the commercial side of things as well. And I don't think that gets as much attention. Um, you know, it's the people that are coming in and knocking down build multiple buildings and putting up a 40 unit building, um, that are really going to start like changing a lot of those areas to the point where it's going to gentrify huge, you know, like that's what you start to see, or you did see in, in Humboldt, um, Wicker, you know, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Logan, um, 15 years ago, you know, you started to see buildings disappear, um, but so to that point, um, I think the gentrification that's occurring, um, is necessary gentrification and that these houses are going, they're going to dilapidate. They're going to deteriorate, uh, if you don't have people go in, unfortunately on the West side, the houses are, there's some beautiful houses, um, there that have just been trashed. They're not salvageable. There's a lot of property on the West side that's, that has historically been, um, just abused. Um, and so I think that there's a life, there's a life cycle for real estate in general. And I think that rehab gentrification, you know, whatever you want to call it is a necessary component of that. And that comes at a cost, right? Like that's when the rents increase. That's when the, and that's just business. Um, in theory, the people that have lived there are living there should also, the wages should be going up. Um, they should be able to afford to pay more, you know? So I think without getting to, you know, talking about the, the people that are ending up moving, you know, I think it does become kind of a, a people problem. And I think that's probably the unpopular um, perspective on that. And that it's, it's things can't stay the same forever. 
right? And so there, there's always going to be change. And then there's people that don't want to change. Um, and so it's like you, you either keep up with it, you're keeping up with your buildings. Um, and if, if you were investing in your building over time, then it's, it's not, nothing's going to change with that building. Nothing's gentrifying. People aren't moving out. You know, it's been regular turnover. It's the disservice that the housing provider is actually doing by allowing the people to live there at the same rent for 15 years. Um, and then, yeah. and then they, they turn around. So it's kind of almost like a crutch that the landlord has done in there by saying, I'm just not going to put any money into this building and I'm going to let you stay here at $700 a month for 15 years. And then when they look up in rents, 1500 a month, you know, 15 years later, then what are they going to do? They haven't adjusted. They haven't, it's not budgeted. It's not, you know, there's, there's the whole lifestyle change for them. And so I think it's a lot of, a lot of disservice that the industry has done in Chicago in particular, um, there that kind of causes the gentrification or, or yeah, causes the, the flight or the movement of people in that gentrification process. Because in theory, you know, the, the people that are living there, um, everything should have been increasing or appreciating or, or, um, adjusting with time. That's a phenomenal reflection and analysis on gentrification. And I think the piece that stood out to me the most was like the reframing of it, of it's a life cycle, right? Like everything can't stay the same forever. And so you choose to update it gradually over time with the market and with typical maintenance and upkeep. Or you don't, and as a result, later on, you're going to have a really high jump all at once. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that was a phenomenal analysis. I, I mean, I agree, man. That was really good. Um, I agree, I, and I agree with a lot of your points. I think that uh, it's hard to keep things the same and to want to keep things the same, especially when you've got neighborhoods that aren't performing well. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, man, I, sorry, I totally unloaded that one here, but you answered it beautifully. Yeah, you answered that beautifully. So yeah, yeah, no. So I love it. Um, thanks for your insight here, Jordan. Yeah. All right. We're, we've got a, we've got to wrap up on this one, but I, so this was a great conversation, dude. I want to like, I honestly, I could go for another hour because I, you, I probably could you have, you have so much really good insight and really good story. Um, and so as soon as you kind of like probably get the house done, we'll probably reconvene and have you come back because there's, there's so much more to tell, uh, about Pictures. what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> videos. You got to provide walkthroughs for that next person uh, who wants to move to Chicago. Yeah, man. Well, the, the basement walkthrough. No. Well, something on YouTube. Oh, okay. I got you. Yep. Um, so how we do wrap up our episodes is, we ask like, what's the big, biggest takeaway from our conversation tonight that you want someone to kind of walk away with another loaded question. I think the biggest thing is, is don't be, and I don't want to pick an answer that like everyone always says, but take the first step in the first step. I think a lot of times 
like in the real estate world, for example, like they're saying, oh, just jump in, take the first step. And that first step they're calling is like, buy your first property. Well, there's a lot of other things before that that are truly like baby steps. Um, and maybe, uh, I don't want to dive into this too much. Um, one of the big things that I learned, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the big things that I've worked on is I get really overwhelmed when I set these big lofty goals. And so I had to take a, a second and say, okay, how can I break that big goal down into the smaller ones? Um, and, and really for me personally, the, the big one makes me overwhelmed. Sometimes for people, that's the carrot on the stick. That's what they need to keep them going. For me, if I have that big lofty goal, I'm going to anxiety, sweating, it's going to not happen. I had to learn how to set my goals. And so setting those small ones, the first step might be having a conversation. First step was probably just getting on YouTube and literally like, what am I looking for? You know, and then finding something that I, a way that I could learn um, and then making that connection. So I think to wrap that in a nice little bow, biggest thing for me is like biggest takeaway, setting small goals and taking the first step on those small goals. Don't, don't get blinded by the, the large lofty goal. Yeah, that was great. What about you, Rich? Um, I think for me, it's similar to that in that don't be afraid to reach out first or to um, reach out to somebody you don't know and make a connection because it can create an opportunity for you and snowball into something. And as you pointed out today, people gain a lot of satisfaction from helping somebody. And, um, I, I mean, I think you reaching out to Jason on YouTube was beneficial for you in, in getting a connection here in Chicago and getting um, some questions answered that you had over lunch. But it was also really satisfying for Jason to have somebody reach out and want to ask him questions. You know, and so I think you had mentioned that earlier. I, I just think don't be afraid to just ask for help or reach out to people because it will snowball into something a lot more. Yeah. And it's like, for me, it's, it's all about how do you build momentum and uh, real estate is, and it can be very hard and it can be very detrimental to people if they continue to focus on like the losses that, that come from it, because it's difficult, right? To get your first transaction as a real estate agent is, is hard um, to get somebody to trust you to want to go through the process, right? Is the biggest decision that they're going to be making financially, and um, as an agent breaking into the business, it's extremely hard to get that first one. But it's all about how do you build the momentum and keep the momentum going? And it comes from consistency and it comes from the small steps that you were talking about. And it comes from um, just doing the work of connecting and going to networking events, getting outside of your comfort zone. And as you do all of those things over a period of time in which the money will come going back to your comment, the money will come. Mm -hmm. Well, it totally does when you understand the time horizon that needs to be put into the real estate space where you don't get paid immediately. This is delayed gratification for a long period of time. And you have to know that going into it. But if you can keep the momentum going and understanding that the money will come, that's where 
in my opinion, like it all starts with momentum and how do you build momentum and how do you keep making it bigger and bigger and bigger that will eventually get you to a place that makes a lot of sense. So, and to go after the why and like Mm -hmm. establishing what the why is, I think was a really big thing too. Yeah. I think a lot of people never establish their why they kind of fumble around aimlessly, like using like the carrot on the stick, which is pulling you instead of pushing you, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, you know, it's, and it's a completely different thought process. Dude. Awesome. This was great, man. Um, so if somebody wanted to get a hold of you real quick, best way to do it, YouTube. <laughs> I do a channel. I don't think I have any videos on there. Uh, um, uh, probably uh, text or call me um, 773-451-5001. You can shoot me an email as well. Jordan at GraystoneRealtyChicago.com. Sweet. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate the conversation, me. man. This was awesome. Absolutely. And uh, if you found value in the show, please share it. Uh, This is a great story. And there's a lot more that can be learned from Jordan. So we're going to have him on again as we continue to go down his journey. But thanks again. And we'll catch you on the next one. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Investing Podcast. We hope that you walk away from this episode with something of value, whether you learn something new, felt inspired, or it helps spur a new idea. We are all in this game of life together, and sometimes all it takes is hearing the stories and strategies of others that are out there doing it to help inspire you to take action towards becoming the best version of yourself. Thanks for listening. Please share the show, and we'll catch you on the next episode.